and welcome to Rent Matters. This is Jonas Bordeaux, the CEO and co-founder of Dwellsy. Excited to welcome you back and really excited to welcome our guest this week. Uh, we have Carol Enoch, who's the CEO of Enoch and Company. And Carol is one of the leading experts on property management in this country. Carol, just thrilled to have you with us today. How are you? Thank you, Jonas. I'm doing great. It's wonderful to be here. So fabulous to have you here. We are doing something a little bit different today, listeners. We have Carol on today to discuss one of the topics that probably has a lot of renters going a little crazy from time to time, which is why did my landlord do that crazy thing? <laughs> Where should we start, Carol? Oh, there's so many things that I want to talk about. Um, and, and just to give the listeners a little bit of a background, I've been working in multifamily real estate for 22 years. I started out leasing apartments in Chicago, driving people around, you know, getting them to find their new home. And I now run a nationwide multifamily real estate consulting firm. I also am a renter currently in the Bay Area, and I own an investment property in Denver. And one of the things that that Jonas and I have talked about in the past, and I think is really interesting, is that there can be this conflict between residents and, and their landlords that sometimes feels personal because it's your home for a number of reasons. And so I found that in order to demystify what's happening on the back end of business, that can often help create really wonderful solutions so that everybody's happier, healthier. And clear on what's going on in their home. So that's where I'm coming from. I, over the years, have had a lot of residents ask me a lot of questions, and I made a list of them today. So the first one I would love to tackle is, why can't my mom negotiate my lease for me? That is a great one. You know, so many people graduate from high school, graduate from college. They've never done this before, and they bring their mom along uh, for the process. And, you know, why can't your mom participate in this, Carol? That's such a great question. The answer is she can if she's on the lease as a leaseholder, as could, you know, if you had an attorney or another sibling, anybody that's related to you in any type of capacity relationship wise can talk to us about your lease if they are also a leaseholder. The main reason they can't is to protect your personal privacy. The lease contract is between you and the landlord or the entity that owns the building. And as a person over the age of 18, if you're considered to be competent to sign that contract, the contract is between you and the person that you know, owns the property. One of the reasons that, that we don't um, typically negotiate leases or lease terms with other people is privacy. Uh, I can give you an example of a resident in a building that I managed in Philadelphia, and her dad called my um, assistant manager and said, hey, I really want to pay my daughter's rent this month. I just need to confirm the address. And my assistant said, oh my gosh, that's so nice. No problem. Here you go. Fast forward 48 hours later, I have an extremely upset resident in my office who's been estranged from her father and did not want him to know where she lived. Now, is this an extreme example? Yes. Part of why rules and regulations are typically in place is to take the most extreme bad actor and the most extreme vulnerable person and protect those people from each other. And so if you ever have a question about that, you know, always just open up a conversation with your landlord. Don't hesitate to ask them why. If it's that you're new to leasing, you don't understand the lease terms and you want somebody to help you understand those terms, that's amazing. But you would need to be in the room or on the call with that person and give authorization to your landlord that that person's able to be there. Yeah. No, I think that's really uh, an important point on this is you can bring your mom with you, you can bring yep. your dad with you, and they can participate in that conversation, but you can't send them in your stead to represent you without 
you know, providing them with some legal documentation that is, you know, sounds kind of crazy. Like I want, you know, I want my mom to go negotiate my rent and I have to give her a power of attorney in order to do that or put her on the lease. You know, that's further than almost anyone would ever go in this situation. So, you know, feel free to bring them along. Yeah, absolutely. That's something I've bumped into a whole bunch of times uh, over the years of, you know, just funny, funny conversations where people expect that it would be okay for that to be the case. And it's just not. Uh, and usually it's to protect the renter, to make sure privacy is observed, uh, as you described. You know, one of the ones that we get all the time, Carol, is particularly there are some markets where month-to-month leases are standard. You go to Chicago, and there's a lot of month-to-month leases. But if you're in California or Washington State, somewhere like that, month-to-month leases can sometimes be two, three, four times as expensive as the monthly rent on a monthly lease. Why, why on earth would a landlord do that? That sounds crazy. It does sound crazy. Sometimes it's crazy and sometimes it makes sense. So with a month-to-month lease, if you're looking at this from the business perspective, there's two areas where I think this becomes important. The first is basic accounting, okay? The building is operated on an annual budget. Now, look, I'm not saying this is right or wrong. I'm just saying this is the history of how things have worked in property management in, in many markets in the United States. So you've got an annual budget and and you want to try to understand what your income expense going to look like for that year. That's part of running a business. And so we have historically signed leases along with that annual budget, right? And so the 12-month lease has become something that's very standard. When you don't have that 12-month lease and you've got potential vacancy exposure, maybe it's during a time in the market where it's not a great time of year to rent. Chicago's a great example, very seasonal market. A lot of people don't like to move during the winter. So if you've got an apartment that's coming up, um, for rent in December, January, it's going to get a much lower rent potentially than if you're leasing something in the spring. And so the landlord is going to want to maximize the value of their investment and try to keep those leases rolling on a term that makes sense for them financially. So when you have a month-to-month lease, you've got more exposure. You've also got more risk because you don't know when that person's going to leave. You don't have time to plan for turnover, you know, for any maintenance that might need to be done. So that's from the landlord's perspective. One thing that I do really want to talk about from the renter's perspective, because I know that's the viewpoint, right, that we're trying to go here today is, is what's good for renters. Let's help educate you. It is really risky for a renter to be on a month-to-month lease because that means that the terms that you've agreed to could change any month depending on what market you're in. So when I have friends who are really excited about a month-to-month lease, I'm like, you know, again, not in all markets, but in many markets, this means the landlord could decide to sell the building and give you 30 days notice rather than a 12-month lease that gives you, you know, you're guaranteed that home for 12 months unless there's some kind of crazy you know, act of God or, or weather event or something that, that is just very much out of the ordinary. Yeah. No, you know, I was just talking to a renter about that the other day, Carol, because um, they were really excited about a month to month lease. And within a month or two of going month to month, the landlord had jacked up the rent. And then a month later told them that they had 30 days and the lease was ending. And if they'd had a one year lease instead, uh, it would have been a very different conversation. The landlord just couldn't have done that. That's right. And so when we look at month to month fees, what we're doing is we're 
we're adjusting for that risk. We're also adjusting for cost of marketing, right? Having to get that marketing out there, making sure that people know that the apartment is available. You know, the other thing that I think is really interesting is that I am seeing a shift here. I am seeing a shift in the marketplace in short term rentals being something that especially larger companies are more willing to do. Um, I I think a a smaller individual landlord, you know, you've got a different way that those kind of mom and pop folks are going to operate than your larger institutional investors. And we can talk about that if we've got time. But, you know, with the short term, those folks have figured out that people will pay a premium to have a shorter term lease because then they're not locked in. If if a resident knows that they're only going to be somewhere for three or four months for work, they'd rather pay a couple hundred dollars extra a month to be able to exit when they need to exit rather than sign that full year lease. So, so it actually is something that can help the renter and the landlord if it's negotiated properly. Now, when we're looking at mom and pop versus institutional, you've got a different level that people are going to be able to negotiate based on the size of the company and the rules and regulations that are overseeing what they're doing. So oftentimes you'll have an easier time as a renter negotiating with an individual or single landlord than you will with an institutional because they don't have, they just simply have more flexibility. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's uh, important for people. When you think about a institutional, as you describe it, that's when you're renting from a company as opposed to renting from an individual. If your landlord is you know, Bob or Carol or whoever, then it's a very personal relationship and a direct relationship with that individual. Whereas with a company, um, there's a different incentive set, you know, including you know, the, the company is much less likely to want to sell your apartment so, or your home so that somebody can buy it. And so you're probably much more secure in terms of your lease getting terminated. However, if it's a month-to-month lease, they will change the rent as they deem appropriate according to market conditions. That's right. And again, that'll depend on what market you're in. There are rent control laws in certain markets that typically, and this is another reason that that a 12-month lease can be easier. If you're in a, a municipality that has rent control laws that are governing the rent amount, those rules about how much the rent can go up are annual. And so it is just simply easier to track if you're on a lease so you know when that rent can go up or down. If you're on a month-to-month lease for too long, it just, it can get it can get a little bit confusing to track. And again, if you're with a larger corporation, they probably have back end office staff that are able to do that. If you're with a smaller landlord, sometimes things can fall through the cracks. Yeah. No, and I think there's also a, um, there's a real emotional aspect to this of knowing that your home is your home for a certain amount of time and being on a month to month lease as a renter. Like I I've been there, I've done that. And I know that you're just kind of always wondering, am I going to have to move next month? And that's nerve wracking, even if it's unlikely, even if there's only a 1% chance of that, it's, you know, that's it's a little nerve wracking to know that that's out of your control. I've always, whenever I've been renting, have wanted to know that I have the place locked in for a period of time. I certainly want to have some options, but I don't want to have to worry about whether or not I'm going to have to move within 30 days, every moment of every day. So one of the other topics we got a lot of questions about, Carol, why doesn't my landlord like my dog? Can you help us out there? (laughs) I mean, your landlord as a person might like your dog from a maintenance perspective. I have seen some very interesting things over the years. And I'll tell you, it's usually not the dog. It's usually the renter and their ability to take care of the dog. Wait, are you saying I'm not a very good pet owner? You know what, Jonas? It's possible. It's possible you're not. <laughs> so, and look, we all have different levels of experience in different arenas of life. And let's say you're a puppy owner for the very first time, you're going to make some mistakes. Yeah. Yep. You're a brave soul. It's like having a baby. And I've seen 
a six-month-old boxer puppy chew up 112-year-old solid oak baseboards at a oh. 1890s beautiful Victorian apartment in Chicago. And yes, it was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. And the the owners were two very lovely roommates who were, you know, out enjoying their life and didn't realize how much work it was going to be to have a puppy. And they didn't know that that particular breed of dog chews on things or that particular dog. It doesn't even have to be the breed. I'm sorry, chews on floorboards. Like that's a real accomplishment for that puppy. Yeah. On those gorgeous baseboards. Yeah. I was impressed. They were, they were also irreplaceable. So that was a tough, con- those were some tough conversations that we had. And look, I was working for a smaller company at this time. And this happened to be a building that was owned by an individual landlord. And so we, you know, we were able to work something out with the resident. And thankfully we discovered that this was happening during a routine maintenance check because the, the residents weren't likely to raise their hand and say, excuse me, my pet did this because they didn't want to be held accountable. But the longer something like that goes on, the worse and worse it gets and the more expensive that it'll be. So, and this is going a little off topic and I promise I'm going to get back to the pets, but where maintenance requests are concerned, I will say that I've talked to a lot of renters. Everybody has a different personality type. Some people don't want to bother their landlords. Please bother us. <laughs> I would rather know the tiniest thing that's happening and say, you know what? Thank you so much for letting me know. That's not something that's under our responsibility and have a conversation rather than have something that builds and builds and becomes incredibly expensive. So back to pets. There's a lot of damage that can occur with pets, especially when you're looking at specialty type housing, if it's a Victorian home, if it's something that's older where, you know, the parts for the home aren't available anymore. There are also the issues when you're getting into a high rise situation uh, where you've got a lot of of other residents. Noise can be an issue and fear. I know a lot of folks that have had bad experience specifically with dogs. And so dogs in the common areas typically aren't allowed in certain places. And if dogs aren't trained to be around a lot of people, that can be problematic. So look, we're a very, very pet loving society in the United States. And I think everybody here has seen the rules change. When I started leasing apartments in Chicago in 2002, most apartment buildings did not allow pets. And that was normal. People expected I'm not able to have a pet until I own my own home. That has changed in part because homeownership has become increasingly out of reach. And that's maybe a topic for another show. But, you know, and 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 there's different types of runners. There's short-term runners. There's long-term runners. There's runners for life. You know, you've got a lot of different folks that consume housing in different ways. And it's it's not always possible to find one set standard that's going to work for everybody, which is why you see things change. And so on the institutional side, on those bigger buildings, you're now starting to see very pet-friendly buildings. They're building dog runs. They've got dog grooming stations on site. So instead of saying, okay, this is a huge problem that's causing a lot of damage, somebody said, I see an opportunity here. People want pets. We can accommodate We know that it costs more from a maintenance perspective. So that's when you start to see your pet deposits, your pet fees, and pet regulations around the building to help keep a happy, healthy community balance for the everybody that lives there. Mm-hmm. That's the challenge, keeping that balance. You know, there's, you know, 300 unit community, there might be 600 or a thousand people living there, all of whom have very different preferences and very different needs. And the landlord is responsible to all of those people, not just the one pet owner is super passionate about their pet, but that other people might not feel the same way about that pet. So it can be difficult to have shared spaces with that. That's right. And one thing that's been become increasingly more prevalent is folks applying for ESA or emotional support 
support animal. And I can tell you from my experience, both managing property on site and then being on it, you know, on a corporate level, managing multiple assets and having folks that are working on site that I'm talking to on a regular basis. Service animals have been around for a very long time and and been accommodated in the apartment industry. And those animals are typically trained, right? So if you have a service animal that is designated as such, I've had service animals for folks that served in the armed forces and had PTSD. That's a great example. I can remember a specific, very beautiful Belgian Malinois. I love pets, by the way, if nobody can tell. So, you know, this gorgeous, gorgeous dog, but looks very scary. They look like a German shepherd. And this dog was trained originally to work with this particular officer to sniff out bombs in Afghanistan. So highly, highly trained dog. And then when this particular person got back from service, they have a purple heart, they they had PTSD and they really had a tough time. And so they then trained this this animal as a service dog for this veteran. And the dog went with him everywhere. The dog was trained, quite frankly, better than I am. Like the dog is better behaved than me. (laughs) And so as the person working on site, I had no qualms about this animal being in common spaces, being in the elevator with people, because I knew that this dog was a highly trained pet. Where I have a little bit of a challenge with you know, in some of the ESA cases, those pets are not required to be trained. So when you get an animal that's not trained that are put in an elevator in a small space with a bunch of people, you know, that's where you can start to have some safety issues. And so I have a personal concern about that. I also want to make sure that we're accommodating everybody as we should under the law and under just basic human principles of decency. A lot of it's just about conversation and understanding what's logical and rational. Well, Carol, this has been fabulous. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, It is just, it's been a treat. Really appreciate you being on. Thanks, Jonas. This has been Jonas Bordeaux from Dwellsy with Rent Matters. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you to Lena Stevens for production and editing and Gloria Tells for the music. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a review so other renters can find us. Lastly, but most importantly, please be sure to email rentmatters at dwellsy.com if you're interested in being our next guest. Happy renting.